I'm Debbie Woldridge, CEO of Outsource Training Company, TTC Innovations, which specializes in providing corporations with customized millennial-focused training solutions. Hosting this series with me is best-selling author Haya Bender, whose credits include five dummies books and a complete idiot's guide, and articles for the New York Times. Please frequently visit our The Millennial Career Playbook website at tmcpb.com, as we're always adding new interviews and other content. Mike Kaplan is one of the funniest and quickest wits in comedy. He's been a finalist on NBC's Last Comic Standing and semi-finalist on NBC's America's Got Talent. Mike has performed for David Letterman, Conan O'Brien, and Jay Leno, starred in two Comedy Central specials, and recorded the comedy albums Vegan Mindmeld, Meet Robot, Please Be Seated, and Small Dork and Handsome. In this interview, Mike explains how his love of music and linguistics led to his career as one of the top stand-ups in the country. Mike, what was your first job? I was a babysitter when I was 12 or 13 for a few different families, like friends of friends or things. So that wasn't my lifelong goal. But, man, what if it was? I achieved it so early. (laughs) I don't picture you as a babysitter for some reason. I was fine with it. You've only known me as an adult. And when I was 12, I was a little different. I mean, you know, mostly the same. You can imagine. But... I mean, I was a kid. I was like, we'll watch TV. And we would watch Inspector Gadget or Looney Tunes. I remember one of them I liked and the other one the kids that I was watching liked. So whenever one would end, I'd be like, we should watch the next thing. And they'd be like, no, let's do something else. I'd be like, I think your program's coming on again. And then my show would come on and they'd be like, this is not what we want to watch. I'm like, oh, this is just a commercial, just a half hour commercial for my show. So (laughs) your thing will be on pretty soon, I bet. Okay, good to know. (laughs) So you were practicing the arts of deception early on? As many children do, I hope. I mean, not that I, not that I hope that children practice deception, but I hope that it's not uncommon, or at least I think that my experience is not unique in that I was a selfish child interested in my own things and not interested in necessarily being generous to a fault to others. But if I were to babysit now, I would let the kids watch whatever they want, and we could also just all use iPads with headphones and watch our own thing and not connect with each other one bit. (laughs) Exactly. I think it's really sweet that you were actually interacting with them throughout the entire evening. Oh, yeah. Uh, Not unlike what you do now. (laughs) You're right. That was the beginning. The first real people paying me for doing a thing is I went to a summer camp From age 11, I was a camper, and then I became like a counselor in training, which meant that you worked a little bit, but mostly still paid to be a camper. But then I became a junior counselor when I was about 16, and that was the first time that you didn't have to pay to go, and you actually received money and had obligations, had to do things that you didn't necessarily want to do, even though it was still servicing the goal of being at this wonderful, magical place that had been so special to me. But now I was a music counselor. I would teach guitar lessons played the violin in the orchestra, chamber groups, and would help coach orchestral situations. I would lead a cappella group rehearsals. I would play in the orchestra for the musical at the end of the summer that the kids would act in. It was a summer job, but I did that for every summer from age 16 to my mid-20s. Wow. I forgot that you were so focused on music. I, oh, I didn't yes. know that you played the violin. Since I was four, my parents were both music wow. teachers, and so music was oh. very important to my mother especially, and my dad at the time. They would play in marching bands over the summer. They would teach music during the year. My dad taught private lessons at our home. 
They're both retired from public school teaching now, but my mom still teaches a day or two a week of piano lessons. So that was a thing that was happening constantly in my house and life growing up. So yeah, I took violin lessons and played in orchestras every week and that sort of thing. That was the thing that I had to do initially when I went to camp. My camp's mission statement is you do whatever you want to do. You just have to do something. But there's no rules about what you must do when. But for my mom, the only one rule was you must keep playing the violin, like be in the orchestra. She didn't want me to forget what the violin was about over the summer. So it's sort of ironic from one perspective because the place was founded by a man who had studied with Maria Montessori. And the idea was children like to learn, but they don't necessarily like to be taught, which is true of so many people. Growing up, you're like, science, eh, who cares? But then as an adult, you're like, ooh, si-, you know, maybe. I am, certainly. Like, there's really interesting stuff as long as you're not being forced to learn it, as long as somebody else isn't like, you got to do this. So that's what it was like for the guitar for me. I had to play the violin, but I didn't have to play the guitar. So I loved the guitar. I just played it all the time, didn't even think of it as work or practice. And so that's why I had been made to learn music. But then when I made the decision to start teaching music, that was more a decision that was mine. And I cared about it a lot more than before. Did you teach both the violin and the guitar or were you mainly just teaching the guitar lessons? I was mainly teaching guitar. And actually, my girlfriend now is a violin teacher and has also been playing violin since she was four, and has been teaching for 10 years. And she has been caring about the violin much more and loving it much more actively than I have. I do still care about it. And now that I don't have to do it, it is fun to play with her and other things. Uh, Her and other things. I said it wrong, but I'll (laughs) leave it in. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I just wondered whether or not the guitar, maybe because you picked that up and was doing that out of fun, that then that translated to something that you were wanting to share that passion and the fun with other kids. That makes complete sense. It's very logical, and it might be true. I never actually (laughs) thought about it like that. The main reason that I was teaching guitar over violin is that, number one, it's easier Mm -hmm. to teach a beginner guitar and not worry about screwing them up because there's not a bow to hold in the exact right way. It sits on your lap. You don't have to, you know, there's so many more posture and very specific things with the violin that I worried if I did it wrong, then I would set the kid off down a path that had bad habits they'd have to unlearn. So I was like, I'll just do the guitar because I know for sure you hold the guitar, you put your hand there, you put the other hand there, and you move forward. And the other main thing is there were a lot more kids that wanted to learn guitar than who wanted to learn violin. So there was sort of a demand issue that I would be responding to with the supply of guitar knowledge. But definitely guitarnal knowledge. (laughs) I remember seeing Ted Alexandro playing Carnegie Hall and commenting when he was growing up, his dream was to play Carnegie Hall as a musician. So it was ironic that he finally got to Carnegie Hall, but as a stand-up. Do you see commonalities or overlaps between what you were doing as a musician and what you do as a stand-up? Certainly. I will also say I got to perform at Carnegie Hall when I was 8, 9, 10, somewhere there with a large group of other children playing the violin just as part of a program we were in. That wasn't particularly meaningful because I didn't even specifically get there by practice, practice, practicing. I got there because my mom had enrolled, enrolled, enrolled me in this program, program, program. Uh, (laughs) But I opened for Patton Oswalt at Carnegie Hall earlier this year and Aziz a a couple years ago. It's such a thrilling 
idea, and also, I mean, they were wonderful shows, and those guys both have really awesome comedy audiences. Those were sort of amazing comedic experiences. When I started out in comedy, I wasn't like, well, I hope someday Carnegie Hall. I was like, I hope someday I don't have to work at this cafe. But even if I do, I'm totally fine to keep working at this cafe. But the number one goal, stop working at the cafe. And I achieved it. And then Carnegie Hall. Um, <laughs> there's tons of comedians who are also musicians. And it makes sense because music is its own kind of language that I learned very early. And comedy also has the performative aspects of it, the things that it has in common with, com with you know, I forget which one I started the sentence with. Comedy and music both share in common uh, that you don't need to remember where sentences start as long as you eventually finish talking. But timing, the idea of when you make what sounds, in what intonation, where are there rests, where are there pauses, because you're creating sound to have an effect on a listener. In comedy, I think sometimes the audience is kind of the instrument that you're playing so that you draw the bow across them by saying a certain word or phrase and then they react and the sound that they make is the sound of the audience instrument. Mm -hmm. So the way that I create both comedy and music, there's different ways that I do both. Usually with music, if I'm writing a song with lyrics, I will start with the lyrics and then add music to it. And with comedy, I'll start with an idea and then go on stage and then that idea will shape into the exact sounds that it ultimately comes out as. And there might be some improvising at first around this theme of either the idea or the lyrics. And they'll sort of combine like a double helix of DNA where eventually it might morph into something completely different than it even started as. But the, like, uh, the end, the end of this thought. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love the idea of a comic playing the audience that the audience is the instrument. That's, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. Oh, sure. So the point is I taught music at a summer camp. One year I lived with the kids as a house counselor where I would also teach music, but my main job was to live with them and wake them up in the morning and make sure they went to bed at night and make sure they weren't doing nothing during the day. So, yes, that was my first real job, and then in another way, my first real job was when I got to college, and I was walking through the dining hall, and somebody said, do you want to work in the dining hall? And I said, sure. So then I got a job making sandwiches, making pizzas, washing dishes, eventually being a cashier, and so that was my next step through the world of having jobs. How did you end up doing that? It was my freshman year of college, and I was walking through the student union where the dining hall, or one of the dining halls was, and they just had some students that already worked for dining services at a table, and they said, do you want to make some money and make friends and get free meals? And it's funny because I already was on a meal plan that was paid for, and I got several meals a day, but I was like, free meals, you say? I can eat even <laughs> more things than friends. I like the idea of friends. Like they just, It was advertising that worked perfectly on me. Sometimes you'd work during the day and you'd have adult managers there supervising you, but then at night when they all went home, it was just the inmates running the asylum, as some have said in many unoriginal ways before, and I follow suit. The inmates running the dining hall, I'll say, to be new and original, but it was great. We just were completely in charge. Kids would come in and be like, can I have this? And we'd be like, uh, yeah, or no, or whatever. And 
One thing that I did, you had a number of meals on your card. You'd swipe it, and it'd be like, one dinner, please. And some of the places were all you can eat, and they could just eat everything. Some of the places were like a la carte, and so each for dinner, they might have like $7. So they got like a pizza that's $2, and a sandwich that's $4, and a bag of chips is a dollar. And like, you got it, $7, get out of here. And if you went over, you had to pay for it with other money. But sometimes people would only get a slice of pizza. And they'd be like, oh, well, that's $2. And I'm like, do you want to use that $5 for anything else? And that's the way, obviously, the company makes money is they sell all this the potential to buy stuff. But then if you don't use it, it just disappears. So if people only bought a $2 thing on their $7 meal, I would just charge them. And it wouldn't cost them any more, but I would just charge them for $5 more worth of stuff and then give away those things. I was like, Robin Hood, taking from... <laughs> Dining services and giving to the hungry. <laughs> I worked there all four years of my college experience, and it was nice. Working in food service was definitely a good, I don't want to say humbling experience. It was just a really good experience to get your hands dirty and receive then money into your grubby little hands for getting those hands all grubby, or clean as it were, when I worked for one quarter extra an hour in the dish room, washing the grossest job, and you got 25 cents an hour more. Hey, do you want to have a horrible thing happen? You'll get $2 more than everybody else. Oh, yeah. But it, it was cool, and I like made friends with the people there, so it was just a really nice communal thing. And that is why I, when I went to grad school, I got a job initially working at the Barnes & Noble Cafe in Boston, where I, I was at Boston University. Bookstore is a regular Barnes & Noble, seemingly, in the middle of Kenmore Square in Boston, but also it's the official BU bookstore, so like the fourth floor has textbooks, whereas Brandeis, the school bookstore, was part of the school, and you wouldn't accidentally stumble into it looking for books if you were just wandering through Waltham, Massachusetts. But in Boston, at the BU bookstore, people would be like, oh, I'm a regular person shopping for regular stuff at this regular store. At the time, there wasn't even like cafe manager, like most every other section of the bookstore had a manager, but there was just this supervisor who was a year younger than me. I'm 21 or 22. She was taller than me, so I accepted her authority, but she was just a kid like me. She would order things just because she wanted them. She'd be like, I'm going to get this little teddy bear tea set situation and then use her discount to buy it cheap. And now the store had these things that they didn't need or care about. One time she went on a smoke break and left a guy working on his own while a line piled up out the door. And he was like, you know, I think I'm going to leave. And he just quit right then and there. Wow. And she came back from her smoke break and was like, where did Lucas go? <laughs> there was just a person in line who was like, he just left. And then we never saw Lucas again. Um, <laughs> so Lucas, if you're out there, I wish you well. And thanks for that fun story. That I still... <laughs> but uh, it's sort of like with comedy. A lot of people are like, oh, it's got to be horrible when you have hecklers. The worst thing that could be possible in comedy for me is if I felt physically threatened, which I fortunately never have. Very rarely do I ever have the sense that a thing that I say could make a person be mad enough to break the law and assault me. So the worst thing that generally happens is people just don't like the show, don't like me personally, don't like the things I say, don't laugh at them, maybe yell things out, the kind of like, boo, you suck, get off the stage, next. That kind of heckling is rare in my experience, and I think it's more sort of blown up in portrayals in movies or on TV or in people's expectations. So similarly, 
at the cafe, the worst customers in general were people who were not rude outright, but just weren't friendly or... Have you heard the story of the broken goblet? A Zen master, I think, some guy, doesn't even matter. He's like, I drink out of this goblet every day, but I conceive of it as broken. It's not currently broken, but I think of it as broken. I wash it, I think it's broken. Every day, I'm like, I'm drinking out of my broken goblet, I'm washing my broken goblet, and then eventually, if it ever shatters on the floor, I'm not upset because that was my broken goblet. And that's sort of a, an analogy for life. Our bodies are all going to break down. Every relationship will end for some reason or another, whether it lasts until somebody dies or it just ends for a different reason. Every job can go away. Everything is potentially a broken goblet. So at the cafe, obviously I'd hope that everyone's going to be nice and friendly, but I know it's not. So I'm like, every person, every interaction is a broken goblet. And if they are the worst, then I'm like, well, of course they're the worst. They were potentially the worst. But if somebody's nice, then that's a bonus, extra great situation where if people were nice or if they tipped well or just they were, you know, smiled and were friendly, treated you like a human being. Because I think we've all been in situations where we're like, I'm here for the coffee. Thanks for the coffee. Bye. You don't have to have a more meaningful, substantial connection with everybody, but sometimes you would. I guess the common thread of most of my jobs is that I like interacting with people. I like having fun with people. There's some jokes that I would do with certain people. Like if somebody ordered two coffees that were exactly the same, I'd be like, here is the small coffee and here is the other small coffee. Don't get those confused. Something like that. <laughs> Or if they ordered a small and a large, I'd be like, here are the two coffees, and I forget which one is the small and which one's the large. But I think you can figure it out. They'll taste the same. I, <laughs> I, I put the large in the small cup and the small in the large cup, so uh, enjoy. <laughs> it was just a fun thing. I liked a lot of the people that I worked with, and if I didn't like them, then that's fine. They're just broken goblets that I work with. We skipped a little bit. What did oh, you sure. major in in college? I majored in psychology and philosophy and I got minors in linguistics and math, and then I went to grad school for linguistics. So did you break your parents' heart? It kind of betrayed them. In a way, the opposite of music is words. So, <laughs> uh, I mean, you're still uh, in this general sound business, but were they okay with that? They definitely were. I mean, my dad left music teaching. He majored in it in college, and he taught it for many years. I've actually never talked to him about how meaningful music was and what his path with it was. He loves listening to it now, but he switched to teach technology and some math classes. He remarried after my parents divorced, and his wife is a math professor, and so he has worked at the college, I believe, that she works at. There's, music. there's so a lot of overlap between music and math also. So, I mean, oh, that's, definitely. That's also a very common combination. Absolutely. A common combination. Um, <laughs> because he himself had left music as his career and his passion, there's no way that it would make sense for him to be disappointed that I also left it. Maybe he'd be more proud. Hey, you're following my footsteps away from music. But... He wasn't disappointed with my decision to do comedy, but he was certainly confused by it. He was a very dad-like, or at least maybe I think of him as dad-like because he is my dad and this is how he is, but he was this rational, practical, conventional in some ways. The path is you go to school, you go to college, you pick a career, you get a job, you have it, you get married, you get a house, all the way that his generation or a lot of the people from his generation lived or wanted to live. So when I said I'm going to grad school and I'm going to pursue comedy at night, 
he was like, what is your backup plan? Like, what will you really do? Initially, I wanted to be a musician, a singer-songwriter, and that is what led me into comedy because some of the songs that I wrote were funny. But so as I was trying to do two things, even for parents who were music teachers and into the arts, obviously, and teaching the arts, he was still such caring and love and concern for me and my well-being that he was like, but you shouldn't go into this, right? Because that's difficult. It's You never know. How are you going to feed yourself? Where are you going to live? How are you going to make your future happen? What will your job be? What will make sense? Because a music teacher is still a teacher, and a teacher has a job and gets tenured and can have a pension. And the path that I was taking didn't have those things, so he didn't get it until many years later when he saw that I was supporting myself from working at the cafe, and I was a resident assistant at my university, so I had housing taken care of and got a stipend for that. And on one level, he was also just happy that I was happy. And then on my mother's side of things, she to this day has continually been teaching music and loving creating and sharing music. She was really the force behind wanting me to feel that way also. She was not betrayed by my deciding not to go into it either because I told her and she knew and she saw that I did love it. She didn't need me to have it be my career. In fact, one of the reasons that I didn't major in music in college was because of how much I loved it. And I didn't want it to become a thing that I had to do again, a thing that I had to mm -hmm. learn about, to take music theory classes again and take music history. And I really didn't want to learn about that or care about that in a way that now I am happy to like talk to my girlfriend about these things because she loves it. And it is interesting when she shares things with me. And I can learn because I want to, but I didn't want to make it be again a thing that I had to do. So I specifically, I joined an acapella group in college. I joined a chamber choir. I took voice lessons because I wanted my voice to improve because I wanted to actually get into the acapella group because I didn't the first couple of years I tried to get in. I was very specifically like, I love music and that's why I won't do it as my career. The same way I once took one day of a class called Intro to the Moving Image, film criticism class. And I remember the teacher saying on the first day, we're going to learn how to look at movies and analyze them and delve so deep into them. You're not going to enjoy a movie the same ever again. And I was like, no, you. I like the way I enjoy movies. Which ultimately, ironically, with comedy, I love consuming comedy. I love watching. I love being a part of it. And I love analyzing it. I love dissecting it. I get to, with comedy, have my cake and dissect, have a pie in the face and dissect it too. <laughs> And that's, I think, why I know that I'm doing, if not the right thing, a right thing. So I still love music. I still create music. I play with my girlfriend. I've written probably, since I started dating her, more songs than I have in the past many years just because I've written them for her. I love playing for fun now. The way that I think of it now is comedy is the career that I'm married to, but it's an open marriage, and I'm allowed to see music on the side whenever I want, and we can do musical comedy threesomes if we want. <laughs> I'm now glad that my mom made me learn music as much as she did because it is in me now. She hadn't started me on the violin when I was four. I now couldn't have that experience of having started when I was four. And that's within the age limit where you can learn languages so easily, which I think includes music. Like the earlier you get started learning music, the more natural and conversant and the more fluent you'll be with it. So I am glad that musicality is running through the veins of my life in the way that it is.
I'm really curious about what made you go to grad school in linguistics, especially because it's really pertinent to who you are as a comic now. Here was my thought process, as far as I recall it at the time. Parents were both teachers. They'd gone to college. They were like, you go to school, you'll go to college. I was like, okay, I will go to school, I will go to college. I am part of suburban Borg. And it's funny because I've since met in comedy so many of the smartest people who didn't even go to college. I'm like, oh. Like, I remember the first time I was like, a smart person didn't go to college? And then my mind was kind of blown open. I was like, did I not have to go to college? Could I have saved thousands of dollars? Like, I was on a scholarship for a lot of it, so I didn't incur mounds of debt like many do. I know people who've known they wanted to do comedy since high school, and it's smarter to not go to college sometimes. Like in Goodwill Hunting, you can read the books from the library. Information exists in the world. You can audit classes. You don't need a degree to prove that you're a comedian. And so by the end of college, I was like, I know what I want to do. I know I want to try to do this music thing. So I'm done taking standardized tests. I'm done going to school. But then I was like, I'm not going to be a famous successful musician immediately, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to get a job, right? And then my dad's voice of, what is your backup plan? Echoed in my head for a little while, and I was like, maybe it would be good to have a plan. So in my senior year, I did decide to apply to many grad programs. I applied to Teach for America because I thought about teaching. I didn't get in, which I'm sort of eternally grateful for, because if I had, I might, I might still be a teacher, and that would also be fine. But I do love the life that I have now where I didn't do that. I applied to mostly psychology grad programs, like a PsyD program, some education programs, some master's programs, some counseling, MSW programs, and I got into some of them. One of the other things I wanted to do was stay in Boston, and so some of the schools I applied to were in New York, and some of them were farther away, but I had a girlfriend in Boston at the time, and I was like, I want to stay close to Boston, so I'd also applied to Boston University's linguistics program, I'd taken five or six linguistics classes at Brandeis and loved them, and I wanted to learn more. So I was like, well, why don't I follow that thread and at least apply to that program? And so I got into that program, and I talked to some of the people who ran it, and it sounded great. And at the same time, I was like, what do I want to do with psychology? I know I like talking to people. I know I like helping people or listening or giving advice, but what do I do? Which degree should I get? Do I need to get a PhD like one of my teachers recommended? Then you can do anything. But I'm like, that takes years and years to get. What if I don't want to do everything? What kind of counseling do I want to do? It was sort of like, actually, this is the first time I'm making this analogy, like how I thought I wanted to do music, which I did want to do. Like music is to psychology as comedy is to linguistics in the experience of what happened. I was like, I want to do this, but I didn't know where to go or exactly what to do. I didn't find enough music open mics. I didn't know where to go for psychology. And then the one shining example of either the comedy studio and then all the other comedy clubs making themselves available to me because I found them lines up with the same thing with the linguistics. I was like, I love linguistics. This degree program sounds amazing. Also, they will allow me to be a resident assistant. So I got free housing, so I didn't have to worry about that. And I get to stay in Boston. Like, it all naturally aligned in a way that I was like, this is great. I get to take more classes for fun. I basically get paid to live for free. I had to pay to be a student, but it was cheaper than rent would have been. And it was sort of right in the heart of Boston, a couple miles from the comedy studio, a couple miles from the vault. I had a car. I could easily get to the shows that I wanted to do. 
and the hours were pretty flexible. Like as long as I held my house meetings when I needed to and was on call when I needed to. Eventually I became a senior resident assistant and I was on call with a pager. So as long as I was within a 10 minute radius, I could go out and do shows as long as I was willing to, if I needed to, come back and address any problems that I was responsible for or that other people were responsible for that I was meant to respond to. And the shortest answer is because I loved linguistics and I could. How would you say that training has impacted your comedy? People ask sometimes, did you study linguistics because you wanted it to help out with your comedy or vice versa in some way? And I think they both spring from this well within me. Like when I was 12 years old, that's the first time that I remember making a joke specifically out of words where I was drawing something in math class, a graph, on graph paper, like sort of a, a fractal pattern. And people were like, this looks cool. And one kid was like, but there's no point. And I said, you're right, I should sharpen my pencil. And I got up, and then it got a real big laugh. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But I didn't think, like, I should be a comedian. But I look back on that, and I'm like, that is the first joke I remember explicitly making. And so that was in me from childhood. And so that is why some of the comedy that I do is like that. That is why linguistics interests me, period, because I like breaking down and analyzing and dissecting and philosophizing from the lowest level of what sounds make up a word, what words make up a phrase, what phrases make up a sentence, what sentences make up a meaning, meanings make up a story or a philosophy. This hierarchical structure that when I found out that linguistics existed, I wasn't like, oh, this will help me with this other thing. They're both symptoms of the benevolent disease within me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well put. Um, and did you end up getting your master's? I did. I almost didn't. Most people would finish in two years. It was eight classes and a thesis project, which is like a paper, but they didn't call it a paper because papers had more bureaucratic requirements. So they said, you have to do a project. And I was not a huge fan of doing research. I loved learning and then taking tests to demonstrate that I had learned. So I took all the classes within a couple years, slowly, because I was living for free. And so I only took like one or two classes at a time. By three years in, I had finished all the classes. And then my advisor, who was a wonderful teacher and person and supporter, we would meet once in a while and she would discuss with me different ideas for what thesis project I could do. And then I just would continue to not do it. And by that point, I was pursuing comedy. I'm like, comedy is the thing I want to do. I'm working at the Barnes & Noble Cafe. I also, by that point, had another job in the speech and language department of a technology company called BBN, which was in Cambridge, which I fortunately got that job. It was, at the time, the highest paying job I'd ever had. It was doing something that I actually cared about and enjoyed. It was a weird thing that, based on being in the linguistics program, I got emails every week that were saying, hey, do you want to become a linguistics professor in Norway? I'm like, oh, I can't do that yet. I don't live there, and I don't have my degree. Thousands of those emails would come, but then one came, hey, do you want to come work in a lab in Cambridge doing some language fun stuff? Also, you don't need a degree yet. And I was like, that's a train ride away from me. And I went, I did these things that seemed like games, and then that's a job that I had until I didn't need to have a job anymore. I'd work there 10 to 20 hours a week, depending, and it was flexible. I could go in on the weekends, I could go in Monday and Tuesday, and then take off and do comedy from Wednesday to Sunday if I got booked somewhere. That was the greatest thing that allowed me to become a comedian full-time, the ability to slowly, gradually drop out of the other jobs that I had like drop down to 15 hours, drop down to 10 hours, drop down to eventually zero hours because I didn't need it anymore. And all through all this time happening, I was little by little from 2002 
I started pursuing comedy, probably got paid $50 for doing comedy in the year 2003, maybe got a couple hundred bucks in 2004, little by little started becoming an opener that you'd make 50 bucks or 100 bucks for a weekend, or maybe eventually a little more and more, and then if you work your way up, I was eventually a feature. And you did the basically the same amount of driving and almost the same amount of comedy, maybe 10 more minutes, 15 more minutes a night, but you got paid double. And then I got a college booking agent, which was almost all Rory's doing, kind of, because in Seattle, Rory's manager saw me, and she ran a festival in D.C. where I went the next year because she saw me there. And then at that festival, a college booking agent saw me and was like, hey, you would be good for colleges. Do you want to perform at colleges? And I was like, yes, that's a thing that I've definitely wanted to do because I knew that colleges had money to pay comedians, and I thought that my comedy would be great for college students. And so I started going to NACA conferences, which is a National Association of Campus Activities. It was kind of competitive to get in. You would submit a very short tape, and they would select very few people. But I got selected for a couple of them uh, over the course of a couple years and had some great showcases, which got me enough money to survive. I got enough money for performing at a few dozen colleges that made me think I don't need to get money from other places if I can keep doing this, if this can keep holding up. And so that's now 2007. So in 2008, I decided I was done with grad school. I hadn't yet written the thesis, but I was like, I'm now a full-time comedian. I can leave here. I don't have to live on campus anymore. I don't have to have this job. I don't need this safety net. I can get out of here and keep moving forward in my comedy career, which is the one that I care about. I already took the classes. I already got the knowledge. I don't need to prove it to anybody anymore. I did it for myself and for its own sake. So I, I was totally prepared to leave college. I left the dorm. I moved out of Boston. I moved to New York in 2008. And that advisor, who I loved, who also loved me, uh, said to me, she's like, I don't say this to everybody, but I think that you can... And I don't want to say should, but she's like, you can do a thesis. I'll help you do it. One more semester, we'll pay for you to do it. I didn't have to pay for my last semester. They wow. found a grant or something. She just thought that I could. And as much as I don't believe in shoulds, and she was the same, but she's like, you can do this. And she had a project that she was working on that she gave me a section of to work on. And I was like, thank you. Finally, an assignment. I can do it. I did the research. I fulfilled the minimal obligations of the thesis project. She approved it. Somebody else read it and approved it. Whatever had to happen, happened, and I got my master's degree. By that point, I'm already a full-time comedian, having achieved the goal that I care about much more than that, which is often the way that things go. You start something, you want to do something, you want to achieve something, and then by the time you are ready for it, people still don't give it to you, and eventually you get past caring about it. Like people want to get to Montreal to do new faces and they work and they get a call back and they don't get it and they do it again and they don't get a call back and years and years go by and eventually they're living their life and doing the career that they want and then they get the call, hey, do you want to come do this? And you're like, oh yeah, I'm already fine, but thanks, sure. That's not necessarily everybody's experience for everything, but mm -hmm. it was for me for this. It was like, oh, I kind of got my master's degree as an afterthought. I'm the same person that I would have been if I hadn't gotten that master's done because I know the same things and I hardly even know what my thesis was about anymore. I know it a little bit. I can tell you vaguely and that's all you'd want to know anyway. But I have the degree. My parents are happy. All things being <laughs> equal, I'm happy that they're happy. I got the diploma in the mail and I wrote on it, it says Master of Arts and I put in a little apostrophe so now it says Master of Arts. Like, that's more <laughs> valuable to me. <laughs> um, is Mike M1 
Q your stage name? I always assumed that your parents gave you that name. Oh, uh, it is a thing that people do think about in that way. But no, my parents named me Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. I came up with the alternate spelling actually at my summer camp around 20-something years ago, probably around 1994-ish. We can look it up exactly when it was because I did it right after Prince changed his name to a symbol. Uh, essentially, the way that I tell it is I saw him do a weird thing, and I was at this new sort of artsy summer camp blossoming into this new creative being where at my school life I was lonely and didn't have as many friends. I had just moved, so I was shy and wasn't super social. I was very introverted. But at my summer camp, I was sort of coming out of this shell into a butterfly to mix metaphors. You know how butterflies come out of shells. And I used to be a social patter clam, clamor pillar. I remember that happened, and I was like, oh, that guy did a weird thing. I'll do a weird thing. And I did it. And then later we found out that his weird thing was for a very specific reason because of contractual obligations with people who owned. Like They were like, oh, when Prince puts out an album, he's like, well, then Prince won't put out an album. This weird symbol <laughs> put out an album. And then I was like, oh, well, he changed back to Prince, and now I'm the lone weirdo. But that's fine. And so... It was a thing that I loved. I mean, it was a fun word thing that I had done that now certainly helps for people to Google me and search engine optimization. If you hear it and see it, it makes sense. But if you only hear it, you won't know how to spell it. If you only see it, you won't know how to say it. So it certainly has its ups and downs, like a double-edged sword, cutting through everything, even what you don't want it to. But there are people who love it, and there are people who maybe don't love it. So I understand either way. Right now, I don't think about it that much. I am who I am, and everybody's name was given to them either by somebody else or by themselves. Like, you're not inherently named a thing. We're just a bunch of stuff. Former star parts, current molecules, mostly water. So it's whatever people want. If you want to use it, if you don't want to use it, I am who I am, or I am nothing. I am in the grand scheme of the universe but a speck of dust, as are we all. But I'm also part of the cosmic consciousness, as are we all. So whatever you like, on tax forms, it's Michael. I'm just really grateful to learn that. And oh, it's, just, sure. uh, it's an example of how much of a self-created artist you are. Yes, um, so. it's, it's also ironic to me that it came from Prince, right? It came from your music side. In, oh, in, yeah, in that's sense. right. <laughs> the name that I am known by in comedy came from music. You are right. The thing that I did with letters came from something completely outside of language and from the world of sound. <laughs> and, in fact, one of your albums is a music album. It a is. Musical uh, comedy yeah. album. I met Micah Sherman probably about 10 years ago, around 2005-ish, when he moved to Boston, where I lived, from Chicago. And he was doing stand-up at the time, and he's been doing improv for decades now. And he knew that I was a musician, and we became friends, and he had the opportunity to host a show. And he asked me if I wanted to write songs with him to do on the show. And I was like, I like you, and I like writing songs, so sure, why not? Why would I say no? And so we started writing songs together, and we just had such a great time, and he became one of my best friends and one of the funniest people that I know. 
at the time, we lived near enough to each other. We just hung out frequently and would write new songs and then got the opportunity to host a weekly show at the Comedy Studio in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which was the place that I started and a place you know, I still love going back to. It's where Eugene Mermid started out and people like Brendan Small, who is also a very big musical comedian. Comedy was the thing that I was ultimately aiming to do for work, but also for fun. And now this musical endeavor with Micah was almost completely for fun. We weren't like, how are we going to get ourselves booked to make money for this thing? We were just like, this is really fun to do. Let's do it on our weekly show. And if people ask us to do it other places, we moved to New York at about the same time and started doing shows there. We both have our own individual career trajectories but once in a while, if somebody asks us to, or if we decide we want to, we get together and keep playing music. Around 2012, we recorded and released an album full of most of the songs we had at the time. And then in the past year or two, we released another free mixtape that we called the Micah Mike Mega Mixtape, which is mostly free because it had some sort of parody songs on it. Most of the songs that we do are completely originals, and so those are on our album. But then we just had a bunch of other fun that we wanted to put out there, and so we did it. That has been now just super fun, and so I'm glad. Could you mention what your album is called? Oh, yes. The music album that I made with Micah is called Please Be Seated. Your persona is a very precise and logical kind of comic, and Micah comes across as a kind of a force of chaos in the way he is on stage. So the two of you performing together is amusing, just in terms of your personas at least, you're almost opposites. I don't know what the reality is. You may be just as logical and ordered as you are, but I was just wondering if you could speak to that a little bit. Oh, that's a great question. We had done that one show together where we had written some songs and put on this show, but Rick Jenkins, who owns and runs the comedy studio in Boston, he was the person who offered us the co-hosting slot. I think that if he had offered it to me and anybody but Micah at the time, I might have been more, not disappointed, but just more curious, like, hey, why not just me? I'm a stand-up. I could just do it. But it was really such a great pairing because of how different we were at the time. Like, so many great duos are obviously made of people who aren't exactly the same, whether it's one person's the straight man and the other one's the goofy whatever. One person understands things and the other one doesn't. I think of sometimes the criminals, who it's like one tiny smart one and one big dumb one. But also, just to clarify real quick, Micah is super smart. He's one of the smartest people. One way that he's smart is just at how natural and funny in the moment improv is the main thing that he's done for most of his life. Most of life is full of improv, full of interacting, like, what's this situation? Every conversation you have at a cafe, every time you talk to a person, every time you do an interview, like, this is improvised. I've never said this before. Here's the thing that I like about him a lot. He'll be completely honest in an improv scene in life. He won't pretend even a time when a regular person, like most normal people, would pretend, would be, say, in a conversation, something comes up, everybody knows what everyone's talking about, but one person doesn't. Be like, I'll figure it out by context. I'll just go along with this. Everyone seems to know, so I'm not going to make waves. Michael will be like, can you explain what that thing is? And... It might be that everybody felt that way, but nobody was saying it but him. He doesn't care about being perceived to be dumb or ignorant or not knowing things, and that's like the smartest way to be is to, when you don't know something, 
ask what it is. And that's how you learn things and become even more informed and intelligent and experienced. What you just yeah. said is one of the most common bits of advice we get from corporations that we interview when we talk to HR people. That's often the number one piece of advice to give to anyone in any career is ask. Don't be afraid to ask. If you fail to do that, you probably won't work out at whatever job you have. So you're right. That's a lesson for a career and for life in general. But it's also a really good technique as a comedian, especially. Oh, since oh yeah. The job is to really get to the truth. And especially in scenes when you're performing with other people, there's different kinds of improv that you can do. But I think the kind that he prefers is longer form where you can actually get into character work, but also you might just see as being honest. Kind of the same as a lot of stand-ups. Some of the most revered stand-ups are also people who do a lot of improv, like Paula Tompkins is one of my favorites, and he'll sometimes, at the top of a show, riff for 10 to 20 minutes. He has a new podcast, Spontaneation, and on the Pod of Tompcast, he would, in between segments, just say things and keep riffing with his musical partner, Eben Schletter. You do that, too. Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember I... one of the things that made you stand out when you were on Last Comic Standing was instead of just launching into your prepared set, you'd start out by commenting on what had just happened, which made you instantly stand out from all the other comics. And Pete Holmes talks about, I had lunch with Pete once, and we're talking about open mics. You go to an open mic as a beginner to learn the craft, but you're actually facing the most difficult audience you're ever likely to face because A, everybody else is a comic, so they're jaded. They're the hardest to get to laugh, and also they're not there to laugh in the first place. They're there to wait for their turn so they can go up on stage. So usually when you're in a room, the people have come to laugh. It's not the case in open mic. So it's very hard to get laughs in that environment. And Pete was determined to crack whatever audience he had. And so if the prepared material didn't work, he would just start commenting on what was going on in the room. And it made him stand out from everybody else because he was working with what was happening in the moment instead of just a prepared set. And it really influenced his entire style as a stand-up. I feel like you do that as well. And it also helps that, I'm not trying to make you uncomfortable, but you're known, very well known throughout the comedy communities, having one of the quickest minds in all of comedy, which is an amazing thing because almost everybody in comedy has a really quick mind. So it's like the best of a very highly refined group in the first place. And I think the ability to take elements and fuse new things like you made up a, a word a little while ago um, oh, sure. is also really helpful for that. Well, I appreciate the kind words. I thank you very much. And I will say that that is something that, like the way that you were describing what Pete Holmes came to learn to do to get laughs by being in the moment. Pete is wonderful at it. I love him and his comedy. And I will say that I do strive to, like, the best shows that I have that I've done recently are shows where people are there to have a good time, and then it kind of doesn't matter if I do material or if I just keep following streams of consciousness and threads of thoughts that I've maybe had before but haven't put together in this order or in this way and making new connections and finding new jokes, new riffs, new tags, new callbacks. And I learned it from Micah. 
two people who I sort of credit as the biggest inspirations for me to start doing that are Micah and Rory Scovel, who I met also right around 2006 when we both did the Seattle comedy competition together. In the competition, you do six nights in a row with the same 15 people, and you see them do their sets, and you're in front of all different audiences and all different judges. So most people, when they're trying to do their best in the competition, would do the same five-minute set the same way every night. That would work for a lot of people. And Rory was the only person who almost literally every night did something not completely different, but maybe completely different, maybe half different, maybe the joke's in a different order, maybe where one joke would end, it would now continue, he would still inhabit the world of the joke, but say new things, the characters would keep growing and evolving, and I was blown away because I'd never really seen people do that before, like now I've seen wonderful people like Jimmy Pardo and Andy Kindler and Paul F. Tompkins and Pete and so many people that do incorporate wonderful riffing and improvisation and crowd work into their sets masterfully. But at the time, in Boston, I don't know if it's inherent or how much of it is nature and nurture or what's going on, but there were so many people in Boston who were amazing joke writers and joke tellers. People like Stephen Wright, people like a guy named Paul Nardizzi and Wendy Liebman, Gary Goleman, like such amazing joke crafters. I mean, I gravitated towards that when I was starting, not because I saw them doing it necessarily, maybe partially that, but also it was just what came naturally to me. I thought initially in sort of small chunks of ideas, a one-line thing, like sort of a math equation of a joke. Say these words first, that's the setup. Then, aha, the misdirection, the punchline. I loved people like Emo Phillips and Mitch Hedberg, people just with sort of very short, powerful jokes, Brian Kiley, Dimitri Martin, Wendy Liebman again. And so initially, when I started out, I was like, well, this is how I do it. I write these short jokes, I try them out. If they don't work, then I stop doing them and I do other ones. And I just keep combining them and putting them together. But I would almost always, for at least the first four-ish years of my career or aspiring career, I would write the joke and then I would say it exactly as I'd written it and nothing further. And then when I saw Rory and then when I started working with Micah, that all, not all changed immediately, but gradually I was like, oh, that's great. Especially because when I was with Micah, we weren't doing, other than the songs, we weren't doing just prepared material. We were interacting with each other and the crowd and just sort of having fun and being hosts. I really learned to be in the moment from those experiences, from him. It's interesting because the thing about being in the moment is you might fail. You might say a thing that doesn't resonate with everybody because you didn't plan it. You didn't prepare it. There's the power of the moment that has to take you to the highest heights, but it could also take you to the lowest lows. When you start doing stand-up, failure is constant. You're bombing all the time. You might be funny, but you don't know how yet, or you might not be funny yet, or you might never be funny. So I got used to that failure, but I built up a suit of armor made of jokes that I was like, okay, well now I can go out and I have this arsenal. It's my shield. It's my sword. It's how I go into the battle of comedy. And now I see this guy, Micah, and his power comes from shedding everything, from not bringing anything with him, from just being like, whatever happens is going to come. I started taking Tai Chi lessons recently, and I'm like, well, that's sort of like that. You go there, and like Bruce Lee said, be like water. Not that he was doing Tai Chi. Maybe he knew how to do it. I don't know. But if people throw things at you, you use their strength against them. You sidestep it. You just be at one with the way of the universe. Now, if I have, ideally, the best of both worlds, I'll go into a show prepared with things that I will say or would want to say or can say, but then 
if the situation is right and the circumstances allow, the power exists, the opportunity exists to just be in the moment. And some of the best shows that I have are ones where I never get to anything that I had prepared because the audience is just so into, and I'm so into, more importantly, the things that I'm saying in the moment. So I think that Micah and I both learned from each other. I had started being, like you said, sort of the more organized, more regimented model of preparation. And he then brought, conversely, this kinetic, chaotic, just in-the-moment energy, this whirlwind, and that played very well off of each other. Like, he could do a crazy thing, and worst case or best case, I could just throw him under the bus and be like, what a ridiculous madman this is. And then either people would relate to him, or they'd relate to me, or ideally, both. And I will say that as a human being, on stage you can do anything, and you can be like yourself, you can be not like yourself, you can follow a riff of a character into something that isn't quote-unquote yourself at all, but it is yourself because you're the one doing it. But I will say that Micah is also, in life, a very organized, regimented, reasonable, intelligent human being. For example, we were hired to write some sketches for an insurance company commercial once, and we just riffed back and forth ideas. I've never, on my own, written a script like that. So I was like, I don't even know where to start writing it down. Do we do interior this, or bold, or capital, or italics? And he was like, I got it. He's been writing sketches for years, and so he just took all our ideas and then put them in and formatted them and made it look professional. And I was like, great. I'm glad that he did that. So that's what it's like working with Micah. (laughs) Thank you. That was wonderful information. Do you think that Rory and Micah were both aware that you were using them as mentors? I don't know about Rory. It was a much more gradual thing because Rory and I met and became friendly. He lived in New York for a little while, but we didn't overlap our lives as much as Micah and I did. Like Micah became one of my best friends, and so he certainly knows that I have learned from him and he has learned from me. And we talk on a fairly regular basis, and we're very open communicators and love each other and share a lot of things. So he certainly knows that we have both grown from our relationship with each other. Rory, I'm not sure. Here's the kind of thing that I do and or have done, but I don't know if I've specifically done it. I could search my email. It's very possible that at some point I've written an email to Rory that said, Rory, since I met you, you were an inspiration in the way that you do comedy that affected me and it taught me that I could do comedy in a way that is not mimicking what you do, but learning that, oh, I was writing symphonies because that's the way that I thought I wrote music. But then I learned, oh, you can also, if you want to improvise part of the symphony or not even play classical music anymore, you can also learn to use the same instrument, the audience or the violin, for jazz if you want to, or any kind of genre, or make up your own genre, or combine a bunch. And so, good question. I'm not sure. If I haven't sent that email to Rory, I will soon. That's great. I I think it's just amazing how your relationship has gone back and forth with Micah and you mentor each other now at this point. I think that that's really a unique and special relationship. It's interesting because normally when you think of a prototypical mentor-mentee or mentor-protege relationship, you have one person who is older or more experienced in the field, the wiser, and then the younger person, the more learning person. Obviously, every teacher also learns from their students. Every time I answer a question, like some of the questions that I've answered today, I've said things that I've never said before. I'm like, wow, I'm glad that I now learned a thing 
from myself or from you guys or from the combination of all of us. And so it completely makes sense, but to talk of two people mentoring each mm -hmm. other has sort of a Mobius strip like an MC Escher-esque quality to it where the stairs are all going up, but they all connect. We're both experienced in being ourselves and living like we do and doing comedy and thinking the way that we do. When you have two mentors together, like that's ideally friendship. We're, we're friend tours. <laughs> Oh, I like that. <laughs> I like that a lot. Half, half friend, half mentor. Like That's great. You made a decision in college somewhere along the way that, gosh, you know, I want to be on a stage. I want to be doing comedy. What was that turning point for you? When I was around 15, 16, picked up the guitar for the first time. And that was the main impetus. When I first picked up the instrument that I didn't have to, and I started writing songs, and it was mostly at that summer camp before I was working there when I was still a camper or a CIT. And I wrote songs that were kind of funny and silly. And I would play them for my friends. And I would play them at coffee house nights or a talent night. And then in college, I started looking for music open mics to play at or bars that I could get into to play at. I had been performing violin on stage in recitals, in concert halls, in orchestras since I was a child. So performing had been something that I'd always done even before I wanted to. So then when I wanted to, I just kept doing it and I found places to do it and I was able to do it. But yeah, that was between the ages of 15 and 20 is when I really got into playing music and wanting to do that professionally. The question that I like to ask people, if they don't seem like they're doing what they would want to do in life, because maybe what they want to do is impossible or they think it is, or they're like, I need this job for money right now. But the question that I always ask is, if you could do anything and you got paid exactly what you needed or more, and you didn't have to worry about money or logistics or time, what is the thing that you would do? How would you spend your time? What would you create? Or where would you go? Or how would you live? What would your days be like? What would your years be like? And the answer for me, starting when I was 15, was I would want to be a musician, a singer-songwriter, playing music, recording music, having fans, traveling. When I was around 21 and 24, that goal accidentally, organically morphed into focusing on comedy as opposed to music. Did you start by doing some of those open mic sessions that I was indicating are such a horribly scary or challenging moment? Oh, yeah. And I'll say that, number one, that is a very common way for open mics to be, especially in New York City and also probably in L.A., where there's a glut of both comedians and comedians starting out. Boston had a smaller version of that. There were definitely some open mics that were exactly like that. And then there were some where there would be bar regulars who were there. I ran a weekly show at an ice cream shop so that at least there would be other people there drinking coffee and better than a bar where people don't know that there's a show or don't want there to be a show. They're at a bar and so they're talking loudly and maybe interjecting and at least at the ice cream shop, people would just turn back to their laptops and not make noise and disrupt things. I also performed at music open mics. I actually recorded an album right around when I started doing comedy, when I was still kind of doing music and the album was half music that I still stand by as songs that I enjoyed writing and recording. And then half of the album was comedy. At this point, I don't sell it to people. It's not on my website. It was just a self-produced thing. I'd only been writing jokes and telling them for maybe about a year. I recorded the album at an open mic in Boston, but it was a music open mic. They just recorded all the music. And so over the course of probably 12 weeks, I recorded 12 five-minute sets where I would do maybe two or three minutes of jokes and then two or three minutes of music. 
And then the album ended up being 24 tracks, half music, half comedy. And I called it Open Mic Night with Mike spelled the way that I spell Mike. Oh, wow. But yeah, that's definitely how I started, how I got into comedy specifically. I had been looking for places to perform music, so I found some of those right around my senior year of college. And then I also found the comedy studio, and I performed there not frequently because I wasn't pursuing comedy, so I was only booked maybe every couple months. So I wasn't really performing regularly at a comedy venue or pursuing comedy, but by the time I was 24, that was the year around 2002-ish, is when I say I really started pursuing comedy because that was the year I figured out that I didn't have to just perform at the comedy studio if I wanted to do comedy. There were other open mics, there were other bars, there were other comedy clubs that I could go to. Like there was a place called The Vault. It's a bringer show. And some of the bringers in New York that you may have heard of, you have to bring 10 people, 15, 20 people, sometimes 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. There's all kinds, and they are sometimes exploitative. You have to bring 20 people that have to each pay a $20 cover and also buy two drinks. It's much more of a money-making endeavor than a genuine, hey, come here, help, because you don't have to do that. You never are required to do a bringer show. There are always places to perform where you don't have to do that. You could just have people over to your house and be like, guys, you don't have to pay any money to come to my house. Here are some drinks. Let me tell you some jokes. <laughs> if you have 20 friends that can come to a show, rent a room and do it yourself and take their money if you want to take their money or don't <laughs> take their money. In Boston, when I started out, there was a two-person bringer show. So I could bring a couple people each week. And eventually, after a few weeks or a few months, I couldn't anymore because the time when you have a lot of friends that are maybe interested in coming to see you is inversely proportional to your skill and your experience. You're excited to have them come and you need them to come, but then they come and they're like, this show is just a bunch of people who aren't full-time good working comedians yet. So if people come to that show and know it, it was an audience. There was no dearth of people who were trying comedy for the first time and could bring out a bunch of their friends. And so if you do go to a bringer show and don't bring a lot more people than they require. Some people would bring 20 people to this two-person bringer. I'm like, you could split this up into 10 weeks, bring two people every week. But after a while, I couldn't bring people anymore. But by that point, the booker knew me and then offered me not a job exactly, you know, not for money, but was like, hey, do you want to come? That show was on Sunday nights, the open mic. But they also had professional shows Friday and Saturday, and they used open micers to help work the door, take tickets, set up. And you would, in exchange for that, get a five-minute spot on the professional show. And also you could do a spot on the open mic for free that week without bringing. So that turned out to be great. And so I did that for a while until I was, they thought, good enough that I didn't even have to do that. And I could just now be an opener and get paid in a free Chinese buffet at the restaurant <laughs> where the show was. Or $25 or $50 or whatever it was at whichever place it was. So... That was how it started, just gradually, first as music, only at music venues, then one comedy club, then other comedy open mics and bars and other things, and then eventually just more and more of that. At first, you're asking everybody, can I go on? Can I do your show? Can I do this? Can I please? Showing up, hoping they'll put you on. And then eventually, that shifts more to people saying, hey, can you do this? Can I book you to do this? Will you do this? And so at certain points, there are still people that you're asking. But eventually, ideally, you get to a place where maybe you need a booking agent or you have a booking agent who just gets offers as much as hopefully you want. And then they're like, do you want to go here? Do you want to go here? And then you do it. It's, it's interesting. The twists and turns you took in part because your ultimate chosen career is one that you can't make a living teaching. 
as a fallback, you can teach music, and there are jobs for linguistics. You can make a living really teaching stand-up, or it's, it's almost impossible to do that because it's a really hard thing to teach. It's one of the few professions where almost the only way to do it is to go out and do it and just keep doing it. Oh, yeah. It. Certainly there are people who run comedy classes, and they sort of run the gamut of reputability. If anybody ever asks me, should I take a comedy class, I would say just go to an open mic or go to as many comedy shows of all different types and levels that you can. Do you know the Al Lubell joke? I think he did this on Letterman. He says, like, before I'd ever done comedy, I went to a show and I saw a guy doing horribly on stage. He was just sweating and bombing. And I looked at him and I thought, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> So yes, I don't think anybody needs to take a comedy class. I do have some friends who have taken classes, and some of them are wonderful comedians. Like Shane Moss is a great friend of mine and a great comedian, and he moved to Boston and took a comedy class because he wanted to start doing comedy, and that was one of the ways that he knew how to do He's like, oh, there is a class. I'll take it. And it was not an expensive class. It was a comedian named Rich Gustus, who is a very funny comedian, would give people exercises and be like, here's how you do it. If you want to do this, then do this. You can make lists. There are books that are helpful. There are other things. Nothing is required, but everything could be helpful. So if a class is the thing that gets people to know, oh, yeah, just stick to your time, and you can write jokes about anything, and you can get on stage and say anything, and all you need is the confidence to do it. If that's what gives you the confidence to do it, then great and fine. I actually ran workshops unofficially, for children to do stand-up at the summer camp. When I was in my last few years there, I was still a music counselor. They had comedy, but they didn't have stand-up. They had improv, they had sketch. Do you know Becky Drysdale? Yeah, I love Becky. Becky is an amazing improviser, one of the funniest people I know. Uh, Absolutely. She's a writer for Key and Peele and many other things. <laughs> Some of the improv that she does is consistently funnier than most stand-ups that I've ever seen. She was also a camper at the camp with me. Cool. It, we were teen-year-olds together. And so she ran the sketch improv for a few years when she was a young adult. And at the time, I was pursuing stand-up. And, and I was like, can I run some stand-up workshops if kids want to do that? And so I did that. And especially because comedy is not impossible to teach, but the way that you teach it isn't to say, here's how you hold the violin, here's how you move the bow. Almost every meeting that we had was just a workshop where I would say, kids who wants to share an idea and we would bounce ideas back and forth like I would with comedian friends oh here's a joke idea that I've been thinking about and then other people could make suggestions or critiques or try to be constructive and say like where you could go with it and then we would put on shows a couple times a summer it was teaching them that the way that you do comedy is to just do it mm -hmm. could you talk a little about how you progressed in your comedy career and the choices you made for example, a lot of comics use stand-up as a stepping stone to write for TV or to do something else other than stand-up. I think I've been fortunate because I didn't have a specific goal to be a comedian before I became a comedian. I sort of realized I was becoming a comedian. Like when people say, when did you know you wanted to be a comedian? I'm like, well, I guess I realized it when I'd been doing comedy for about a year. Eventually then being like, okay, well, if I can make the goal happen, I and my career are broken goblets, but if I got what I wanted, it would be to 
have comedy be my source of income and joy and have nothing else be a source of income but also have other sources of joy. That would be a self-aware way to think about it. So I initially started it while I was working at the cafe, while I was also doing this linguistics annotation job. And I was like, I'll keep those jobs as long as I have to, and maybe forever. If comedy's only a hobby, if I never make my living from it, it's still fun and its own reward and enjoyable, and just that's what I'm going to do. And then when I was able to make my living from it, I was extremely grateful and thankful for that opportunity, because everybody doesn't get that. And also, everybody doesn't need it. People who have a day job and do comedy, they're certainly not any less worthwhile a person or a comedian than somebody. I know people who have quit their day jobs, and then they're like, okay, well, now I'm like basically living in a tiny box, and I'm a full-time comedian. Why not do a couple hours of other work if you want to? Like, I'm completely prepared to do that if it ever comes to it. The idea of just being a comedian isn't an important attachment for me. I'm grateful that it is what I am when I am it. and I'm grateful to get other opportunities the same way that I didn't plan to be a comedian. I don't plan to be a movie star or a TV star. If those things, like about a year ago, I got to film a TV show and a movie, not because I auditioned or planned to. The TV show was Comedy Bang Bang, and it's just because I knew Scott Ackerman. I'd done his podcast, and I'd done his live shows, and he has a TV show, and he is a very generous man with people he likes and are his friends and comedians, and so... I was in L.A. actually to film this movie, and I had a day off, and he said, if you can come in on this day, we have a part for you. And so that was super fun uh, to get to do that, and it's not my natural inclination. Mostly to be an actor, you have to go on auditions, and those are my least favorite parts because those are sort of, to make an analogy, like the things that you have to do, not the things that you want to do. This way was he's saying, do you want to do this? I'm like, oh, yeah, like now I get to do what I want to do. The actual doing of it, not the can I have it, not the lessons that I'm forced to take, the auditions that I'm forced to do. And the movie that I was doing was Henry Phillips' sequel to Punching the Clown, which was an incredible opportunity. I'd seen that movie. I'd seen his videos. I'd listened to his music. I loved his comedy. I'd heard stories about him for years. And then when he started following me on Twitter a few years earlier, I was so psyched. And he had seen me. We'd done shows together. And then we just became friends. And he's like, I wrote a part in this movie that I think you would be good for. Can you do it? And so I got to do that. I mean, that's not a thing that you can build a career on. Be like, I would love to just have all of my friends make movies and give me parts. I would love that. Nick Vatterat is an amazing comedian and friend of mine. And he had a show with TJ Miller and some other people on Comedy Central called Mashup a few years ago. And one part of it was making sketches out of word combinations. So Nick was like, Mike, you like to do this kind of thing. Do you want to come in? I don't even know what job I had, but I got paid some money to not be a writer, but to be like a consultant. But whatever it was, he was like, here's some money. Come in and mash up some words together with us. And I got to do a couple brainstorming sessions, send them ideas, and be a part of creating a TV show there. And so those are things that are just all bonus. If I may, here's an analogy or a sort of a, a life philosophy that I've developed in a specific way that's sort of useful and applicable to a lot of things. They say, if there's a penny on the ground, pick it up. Find a penny, pick it up. All day long, you'll have good luck is one way things go. And another one is, if you see a penny and it's heads up, you should pick it up because that's good luck, implying that a penny that's not heads up is not good luck. And in fact, like that kind of luck isn't something that I specifically put a lot of stock in Regardless, so I'm like, well, a penny's a penny. Whatever it is, heads up, heads down, it's just a penny. The penny has value, whatever value you put. If you're excited to find a penny, whether it's heads up or not, that penny is that penny. 
and that's my two cents. But then also, if the penny <laughs> is if the penny is heads up, then that's a bonus. Like if it makes you feel better, you're like, oh, it's already a penny, and the heads up makes me feel better about it. Wonderful. Then I'm happy to feel even better. But I don't need to feel that extra better because that's just sort of a construct that I've added myself on top of it. So like I believe in good luck, but not in bad luck in that respect. And so the same way, my career is the penny, my comedy, what I get to do, everything that I'm fortunate enough to get to do, that's a penny. Is it heads up? Is it heads down? Some nights one, some nights the other. The bad shows don't add up and weigh down on me, but the good shows do. And then the other bonus opportunities, like the opportunity that Henry offered me, or that Nick offered me, or that Scott offered me, Scott Offerman, oh. all of those things are just bonus heads up pennies appearing in this already pool full of Scrooge McDuck style pennies that I get every moment of every day that I'm grateful for. Not that everything is wonderful all the time, but that goes back to the everything is potentially just broken goblets, shattered glass. The world has so much potential tragedy and horror and suffering and misery on a mass level and then on a personal level. Your health, your career, your relationships, your everything. Everything could be broken, could be leaving you, could be falling apart, could be the worst. Everything could be the worst. So that's the penny. And then whenever anything's not the worst, that's bonus. As you talk and you make verbal discoveries, create new word combinations, which you've done periodically throughout this conversation. And as you do in your performances, I'm now thinking of those as pennies that you're discovering on the ground. And it's really quick to pick them up where most anybody else wouldn't see them. It would just walk by them. Um, oh, yeah. But you've got an eye that can see them. And you're prepped to pick them up and do something with them. So that's a really interesting way to look at things. I appreciate that. I just read a book called Several Short Sentences About Writing. It's by a, a man named Klinkenborg. I recommend it to anyone who writes anything or does anything creative, really. It's really enjoyable and has a lot of great insights in it. And one of the insights, I actually lent it to a friend, uh, Zach Sherwin, who is one of my best friends, a wonderful comedian and rapper. And he read it. And one of the things that he noticed in the book, when you're a writer or any kind of creator, artist, whatever it is, part of the job, part of the work is to notice things and then to not only notice things, but to notice that you are noticing things. And so the more things you notice, the more you'll notice that you are noticing things. Mm -hmm. It's funny because that's a thing that I read but didn't notice. And Zach particularly pointed it. He was like, he, hey, I noticed this. And I'm like, oh. He's like, I noticed that I noticed this. I'm like, oh, now I know. Now I know this. And notice sounds like know this. And I was in Houston earlier this week doing a show, and I got to dinner with one of the comedians who was on opening, and he was real funny, and he just started a job as a teacher, so he said, I've been real busy and just run down from work, so I haven't been writing as much since the school year started, and then he proceeded over the course of the meal to tell me a bunch of stories that had happened since the school year started, and I was like, those are all really funny stories, do you not do those as jokes? And he's like, oh, I guess I could. And so I'm like, you're doing the job of noticing things, you just didn't notice that you were noticing things. So sometimes you'll hear a joke and you'll be like, oh man, why didn't I think about that? I have that experience. Here's one, if not final example, but an example of this. There's a comedian named Chris Duffy, who is one of my best friends and has a show that he does that's on an NPR station called You're the Expert. He was featuring for me on a run of shows that I was doing in the Gulf Coast, like Tallahassee and Mobile, Alabama. And we did a show in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And we had this experience where 
he is half Jewish. His mother's Jewish. And he does a joke about how his name is Chris. And she named him Chris, even though her maiden name is Cohen. And then I told some jokes that sometimes involved discussing Judaism. And then afterwards, five older people, like most of the crowd was like maybe our age, give or take five, ten years, 30s, 40s. There was an older group of people that came up to us and said, hey, that was really great. We're the Jews of Hattiesburg. We're the Hattiesburg Jews. As though they were the only Jews in town, which maybe they were. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know the exact demographics, but that's a story that Chris has told. He does shows where he teaches the audience a different language and then gets comedians of that culture to share some things and do stand-up and whatnot. And so he did one where it was Yiddish. And so while we were on stage together, he shared that story, and the audience laughed. And it's funny because I also had that exact experience. I could have shared that story, but in a way, I didn't notice it. I was like, oh, hey, you told the audience a thing that happened that was funny. I didn't do that. So, like, we all have the potential. We all have the skills to parse the world, but we all have different filters in our brains. We all notice different things, but we also can, through the course of learning from others who are different than us, open our minds and pathways to noticing more and more different things. I don't want to be a nag about this, but just apropos of that, it's crazy to me that you're not writing books. And huh. if you ever decide you want to explore that, please don't hesitate to reach out to me because that's what I do for a living is do books myself and help other people. I mean, that is a profession where you can make a living teaching other people how to do it. But you're all about words and entertaining and that's what books are. I don't want to, yeah. This has been just amazing. And I'm now going to be looking for pennies everywhere. (laughs) 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 I'm not going to let those pennies pass me by because that's such a, what a gift you just gave. That's awesome. I'm going to keep that in. Well, it didn't cost me anything. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing your pennies. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, penny. Who even wants pennies if I find actual pennies, you know? So if I can give them to other people, get some value out of this. No, I give them to you. I still have them. I'm glad. I'm happy to share everything with everyone all the ways I can. I'm sure at some point I will write a book or many books, or I won't, but... I'll keep filtering the universe through my brain and out my various mouth and other parts. I guess mostly mostly mouth, but also like fingers into a computer. Those are the main parts, just to <laughs> let everyone know. But yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys about all this stuff. I got a lot of new things out of it. I'm glad. A tremendous pleasure for us to speak with you, obviously, and a real privilege. You're one of the top stand-ups in the world, and I appreciate it. When I was watching Louis this season, he had an episode where he was dropping the names of some of the very best stand-ups alive, and your name was one of them. Well, it was a pleasure to see that happen. A friend of mine had auditioned for the role of the character. My name was said by a driver. He was driving Louis, and he said he drove Bill Burr, and he had driven me, and that we were both real nice guys. And that was a pleasure. My friend who auditioned for that scene to be that driver sent me a text when he was there, and he's like, your name's in this script. And that was very flattering. Louis C.K. almost objectively revered as, some say, the best, certainly among the upperest of echelons. So to even have him know me and know what I do and like it, what I do is the valuable thing, and then him liking it is the heads-up bonus portion of the penny. (laughs) Can you 
you mention what you're working on projects that people should keep an eye out for? Oh, sure. I did mention the movie that hopefully will be available for people to watch when it exists. Even if I wasn't in it, I'd recommend it. Like, everybody watch Henry Phillips' movie, Punching the Clown, and then get ready for hopefully, at some point soon, the sequel called Still Punching the Clown. So that'll be my movie debut. For my own stand-up, right now you can watch my one-hour special on Netflix. My podcast comes out at least once a week called Hang Out With Me on the Keith and the Girl Network, keithandthegirl.com slash hang. But if you put in my name, spelled the way that I spell it, into anywhere on the internet, you can get jokes every day on Twitter or Facebook, you can get my albums on iTunes, you can get videos on YouTube, you can get pictures on Instagram, vines on Vine, you can get the free mixtape of music that Micah and I put out last year by searching for my name on Bandcamp. Then in 2016, I believe slash hope slash plan to be recording my next album slash special. My next chunk of material that is built around the theme of not wanting to have children. And right now the working title is No Kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Awesome. Uh, the Netflix special you're referring to is Small, Dork, and Handsome, which is, that is also available as an album and it's yes. downloadable from Amazon and I'm guessing probably iTunes and a bunch oh, of Oh, yes. Places. Your guess is correct. <laughs> and, yeah, I think that does it. Deeply appreciate you taking the time and sharing with us all your wonderful insight. You're one of the most thoughtful people in comedy. Your natural inclination to be analytical is just wonderful for what we do. Again, enormously appreciate you doing this. Um, oh, God. And pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, and it's a pleasure to know you. Mike, this has been great. I'm just <laughs> like. fabulous. Thank you, Debbie. Thank you. Hi. You guys are great.